It can live for up to a thousand years. When it dies, it bursts into flames and is reborn from the ashes. It's a new year, and you too can be reborn like the phoenix. If you enjoy this episode and want to hear more like it, check out our Mythical Monsters podcast. Every Monday, we dive into history's most legendary monsters. Follow Mythical Monsters free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. A warning, this episode features dramatizations and discussions of death and immolation. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Something to note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of any single myth about the phoenix. Today's episode combines elements from a number of legends and stories in order to present the long and fascinating history of this immortal bird. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Welcome to Mythical Monsters. Every week, we examine the stories behind some of the legendary creatures that have fascinated humanity for centuries. By investigating their origins, we hope to understand how the monsters we created to deal with our tumultuous past can help us cope with the struggles of the present. This week, we'll be discussing a well-known but often misunderstood mythical creature, the phoenix can live for up to a thousand years before it bursts into flame and is reborn from the ashes. These magnificent birds represent the idea that through drastic change and reinvention, human beings can find a way to become immortal. You can find episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Coming up, we'll dive into the early history of the phoenix. Noah dropped the bag of animal feed and gripped the wooden rafter over his head. The ship hit another wave, lurching from side to side. He tried to distract himself from the swell of nausea in his gut. They'd been at sea for almost a month now, and he still hadn't gotten used to the constant rocking motion of the ark. Once the wave had passed, he picked up the bag and continued on down the row of cages. No matter how many times he went below deck, he was always astounded by the sheer number of animals. There were creatures on this boat he'd never even heard of. Feeding them had been a challenge, to say the least. Noah walked down the rows of cages, giving hay to the horses, a bag of spare mice to the writhing pile of snakes, and a handful of dead bugs to the colorful jumble of frogs. Finally, he came to the end of the ship, where a wooden pen was built into the prow. Here, the Misham always greeted Noah with a slow nod and a flap of her magnificent tail feathers. She was one of the only animals on the ship who wasn't picky about what she ate. Whenever Noah got to her pen, he just tossed her whatever scraps he had left, and she caught them in her slim, golden beak. 
Noah hadn't seen the Misham in over a week. There had been a leak in one of the ship's hulls, and his sons had taken over feeding duties while he repaired it. He breathed a sigh of relief as he sat down beside the brilliant bird and ran a hand over her magnificent scarlet plumage. He'd never been particularly fond of birds, but there was something about the Misham's luminous green-gold eyes that calmed him. He scattered a handful of grain in front of the creature, and she pecked at it with unusual eagerness. Noah frowned as he watched her head bob up and down. He wondered aloud if Shem had been giving her enough food. The Misham looked up at him. To his astonishment, it answered in a silvery voice, I think your son may have forgotten about me. He didn't feed me at all when you were away. Noah blinked and looked at the bird. Anyone else might have thought they were going mad, but Noah had witnessed enough incredible things to believe just about anything. I didn't realize you could talk, he said wide-eyed. Why wouldn't you say something to Shem if he was forgetting to feed you? The Misham groomed a stray feather before answering. He seemed overwhelmed. He was having so much trouble feeding all the other animals, I didn't want to bother him about me. The bird went back to eating, and Noah took his hand off the creature's silken plumage. Now that he knew the Misham could talk, it felt odd to continue stroking it. Noah stood up and gave a small bow. He felt a bit silly at first, but when the Misham inclined its head in return, Noah realized that he should have been bowing the whole time. This bird was due far more respect than he had been giving it. Noah shook his head. Shem could have nearly killed the magnificent creature. As he made his way back through the rows of cages, he uttered a short prayer. May it be God's will that thou shouldst not perish. As soon as the words were out of his mouth, Noah heard a sound behind him. A pillar of flame had erupted in the Misham's pen. He rushed toward it, but in a moment the flames had died, leaving behind a pile of charred flesh and the sickly sweet smell of burning feathers. Noah felt sick to his stomach. He didn't understand. Was this some kind of punishment for daring to dictate God's will? Would God really be so petty? This thought had barely crossed his mind when he noticed some movement among the remains. He knelt down and reached into the pile of blackened viscera. He pulled out a wriggling pink worm covered in ash. It had tiny nubs where arms and legs should have been. Noah watched in astonishment as the worm's midsection swelled up into a round belly. The top grew into what looked like a head, and two dark lumps sprang up on either side of it. Finally, the nubs began to shape themselves into wings and a pair of feet. Noah realized what he was holding the fetus of a bird. He raised it up to the light of his lantern, and the thin pink eyelids began to open, revealing a familiar pair of green-gold eyes. (laughs) 
The phoenix is a ubiquitous figure in the myths and legends of Western culture. Modern audiences know it as an immortal red and gold bird who dies in a sudden burst of flames before being miraculously reborn from the ashes. It appears in literary works of D.H. Lawrence, James Joyce, and J.K. Rowling. It was mentioned by Dante in his famous depiction of hell, described in dozens of medieval bestiaries, and even makes an appearance in the Talmud as a part of the story of Noah's Ark. There's something about this cycle of constant rebirth that appeals to a fundamental part of the human psyche, so much so that representations of a similarly immortal bird crop up in cultures all over the world. Usually these creatures are royalty, and often they're reborn in the flames of their own funeral pyre. There's the Russian firebird, the Hindu Garuda, and the Hebrew Misham. In Persian mythology, it's called the Seamorg, a bird said to be so large it can carry elephants in its talons. The Seamorg is sometimes described as having the body of a peacock, the head of a dog, and the claws of a lion. But just like its western counterpart, the Seamorg is famous for its immortality. Some legends even claim it's been alive long enough to see the destruction of the world three times over. The Chinese version of the phoenix is called the Feng Huang. The Feng Huang is the empress of all winged creatures, residing in a mythical version of the Kunlun Mountains. This nine-foot-tall bird has a chimera-like quality, with the head of a rooster perched atop the neck of a snake, which juts out of the rounded shell of a tortoise. All of these birds come from ancient traditions, but there's one in particular that's been around far longer than all the rest. It's a deity from a religion that predates the Feng Huang and the Seamorg by over a thousand years. Its name is Bennu, or the Shining One. Ben Ben gasped for air as he desperately reached out for something to hold on to. One moment he'd been gathering papyrus reeds, and the next the ground had collapsed under him and he was neck deep in muddy river water. Finally, he managed to grab hold of a clump of reeds jutting out of the riverbank and clawed his way out of the current. Ben-Ben lay on his back, coughing and panting. Finally, he picked himself up, wrung out his tunic, and trudged back to the spot where he had fallen in. This was not how he had wanted to start his day. He found his bag of papyrus stalks and heaved it over his shoulder. A sliver of pink light was just visible on the horizon as he made his way down the road toward the line of white buildings in the distance. Once a week, Ben-Ben got up before the sun and went down to the river to gather papyrus reeds. He spent hours painstakingly shaving the fibrous green reeds into strips. Then he liked to leave them to soak before anyone else was even awake. Ben-Ben was not like the other apprentices. His father had not been a scribe, a priest, or even an artisan. Before he died, he'd been a servant in the house of an architect. His father would have never imagined that his own son might rise above servitude to become an apprentice. And Ben-Ben planned to go even further. 
He would have to work hard, but someday he would become a scribe of Ra. He only wished that his father could be around to see it. Ben-Ben made his way through the quiet streets toward the Temple of Ra. Its polished stone walls glittered in the light of the rising sun, but as he stared at the wide obelisk that rose above the other buildings, he noticed something strange. There was something perched on the tip of the obelisk. It appeared to be some kind of large brown ball the size of a boulder. As Ben-Ben squinted at the strange object, wondering how it got up there in the first place, it changed. A tongue of orange flame erupted seemingly from nowhere. The flames began to grow, gradually engulfing the ball. Pieces of it flecked off, raining fire over the temple. Plumes of flame shot out from it, and sparks landed on nearby rooftops. Soon, the entire top of the obelisk was engulfed in flames, and it looked like the fire was beginning to spread down the length of the stone monument. Ben-Ben's heart pounded. If he didn't warn someone, the whole city was going to burn to the ground. Up next, Ben-Ben discovers something incredible inside the temple. Now, back to the story. Ben-Ben sprinted between the rows of stone rams that led to the Temple of Ra, stopping just short of the painted gate at the front of the building. He'd just spotted flames erupting from the obelisk in the center of the temple, and it was spreading fast. He hadn't thought that stone could burn, but the obelisk looked like it was a few minutes away from becoming a towering inferno. He needed to tell someone. There were four massive onyx statues of Ra at the entrance to the temple. Usually they were accompanied by flesh and blood guards with spears and swords, but today there was no one in sight. He thought about running back to the priest's quarters, but who knew how far the fire might spread by the time he got back? Ben-Ben could no longer see the flames, but he could smell smoke and the warm, earthy odor of burning myrrh. If the stores of oils and incense were burning, the fire had already reached the interior of the temple. He clenched his fists and took a deep breath. There wasn't time to waste. He would have to put it out himself. Ben-Ben sprinted across the temple's grand courtyard, but when he got to the threshold of the sanctuary, he paused. He'd never been inside the building. The only people allowed in the grand pavilion were priests and members of the royal family. For an apprentice to step foot on such sacred ground was a grave sin. It would throw Ma'at, the harmony of the universe, out of balance. Then again, allowing the temple to burn to the ground would also disrupt the balance. He steadied himself and stepped inside. Ben-Ben slowed down as he made his way through the forest of lotus-shaped pillars. The early morning light streamed in from the windows high above him, illuminating brightly colored carvings on the walls. 
Ben-Ben had assumed that it would be easy to find his way to the flaming obelisk, but inside of the temple was a maze of rooms and corridors. He was surprised to find most of the doors propped open as though they were welcoming an honored guest. The doors within the temple were supposed to be kept locked. There was a strange, eerie silence inside the sanctuary. The thick limestone walls shut out any sound but that of his footsteps echoing against the stone floors. Finally, Ben-Ben rounded a corner and found himself facing a sun-drenched courtyard. He sniffed the air, but he couldn't smell smoke anymore, only the thick, sweet scent of myrrh. Had the fire died out on its own? Ben-Ben frowned. If it had reached far enough to burn the incense in the offering hall, it must have been huge. So where was the smoke? As he stepped through the courtyard, he came upon a sacred willow growing in front of the obelisk. Ben-Ben couldn't believe it. The willow was completely unscathed. The only thing out of place were a couple of burned chunks of myrrh scattered around the base of the obelisk. His heart rose into his throat. There was no fire. He'd entered the temple for nothing. Suddenly, he realized just how much trouble he was going to be in if anyone found him there. Ben-Ben looked around the courtyard and noticed that the doors on every side looked exactly the same. He wasn't sure which one he had come in from. Even if he could figure it out, he had no idea how to get out of the temple. He took a deep breath. If he could just keep calm, he could find a way out. Ben-Ben began peering into each of the four doors, looking for any kind of clue. The first three led back into the sun-filled chambers of the hypostyle hall. But when Ben-Ben peered into the door directly behind the obelisk, all he could see was darkness. He couldn't even see the floor beyond the threshold of the doorway. It was as though the space emptied out into a black pit that stretched on forever. Ben-Ben scratched his head and looked up, as if he might find a solution written in the heavens. As he did, he noticed that a chunk of the brown ball was still stuck to the tip of the stone monument. Ben-Ben stopped in his tracks. It looked just like the myrrh on the ground. He frowned. So an enormous chunk of flaming myrrh had landed on top of the obelisk and rained down without setting anything else on fire? As Ben-Ben gazed up at the sticky clump of brown resin, a fluffy red object peeked out over the side. He squinted. It looked like the head of a small bird. It couldn't have been much older than a nestling, so Ben-Ben was surprised to see it take off. At first, it dropped like a stone, but as the little bird stretched out its wings, they seemed to grow before his eyes. When it landed on the willow tree, it was twice the size it had been when it dropped off the obelisk. Ben-Ben approached the tree and watched in astonishment as the bird hopped from branch to branch. By the time it landed on the branch in front of him, it was the size of a stork. The bird preened its brilliant red and gold feathers and looked up at him. Its green eyes emanated a brilliant light. As Ben-Ben looked into them, he was struck with a realization. Suddenly, everything made sense. 
He understood the meaning of the burning myrrh. He knew why there'd been no temple guards, why the doors had all been open, and how the bird had grown before his very eyes. The bird opened its slender, golden beak and spoke in a high-pitched voice that was clear as a bell. Ben-Ben, do you remember what happened at the river this morning? Ben-Ben nodded. He'd been gathering reeds when the riverbank collapsed below him. He'd fallen in and hit his head on a rock. His eyes had closed. His lungs had filled with water. And he had died. At some point in the 5th century BCE, the Greek historian Herodotus traveled to the city of Heliopolis, known by the Egyptians of earlier centuries as Iunu. There, he heard a story about a sacred bird with a beautiful plumage of red, purple, and gold. Every 500 years, it traveled from Arabia to Heliopolis with the body of its dead parent. It preserved the body in a ball of myrrh, a fragrant tree resin used in incense and oils. The bird then brought the preserved corpse to the Temple of the Sun. There it buried its parent and covered up the grave with fresh myrrh. Herodotus called this bird the phoenix. However, it's likely that the bird Herodotus meant to describe was the Bennu bird, a sacred manifestation of the Egyptian god of creation, Atum. Herodotus was notoriously unreliable, so it's often hard to tell where he was getting his information from. He would often retell a story, but leave out crucial details, making it difficult to know which myth he was actually trying to recount. But even in spite of Herodotus's inaccurate scholarship, a few telling details make it very clear that the phoenix is a reframing of the Bennu bird. Every morning, the Bennu bird appears with the sunrise. Then it travels from east to west in a journey that symbolizes the path of the sun throughout the day. Coincidentally, the journey of Herodotus's phoenix from Arabia to Egypt is also a journey from east to west. The Bennu bird's journey across the sky represented the human journey through the realm of the living and into the darkness of the underworld. The bird was often shown guiding the dead on their journey to the afterlife. Herodotus' inclusion of myrrh in the myth of the phoenix is also significant. Myrrh was an important part of the Egyptian embalming process, tying the phoenix once again with the dead and the afterlife. Herodotus's story of the phoenix is a little like an ancient game of telephone. His misinterpretation of the Bennu bird leads him to create a marginally different creature that would then circulate through the scholarly circles of Greece and Rome. With each new author, the bird was reborn as a slightly different creature. But there was one detail that would remain the same. No matter who was describing it, the phoenix was a bird of great and ancient wisdom. It was here long before we were born, and will still be here long after we are dead. Ben-Ben looked at the bird in front of him with new eyes and asked, are you the Bennu bird, he who rises with the sun each morning? The bird ruffled its feathers and answered, 
You may call me that if you'd like. I was once called the Misham, and I will have many more names before my time is through. Ben-Ben had a special place in his heart for the immortal Bennu bird. He'd been born on the day of the bird's festival, and his father had named him for it. He knew its story well, and he knew that the living could not see the bird's rebirth. It was only the dead who could witness the miracle of Ra. It had not been his body that crawled up onto the riverbank that morning. It was his ka. His immortal soul had continued on into the city, not knowing that he was already beginning his journey to the realm of the dead. Ben-Ben fell against the wall of the courtyard. For some reason, he kept thinking about all the hours he had spent making papyrus, cutting the reeds, soaking them, flattening them, and weaving them into sheets of paper. He'd done all that work so that someday he could be a scribe, and now it was all over. Ben-Ben looked up at the bird and asked, "'Are you here to guide me through the trials of Duat?' The bird nodded and pointed its wing toward the door at the back of the courtyard. Ben-Ben's stomach clenched. He walked to the doorway and tried to peer into the darkness. Through that entrance lay the Hall of Truth. There Osiris would weigh his heart. If it was lighter than a feather, he would be allowed to continue on to the field of reeds. There perhaps his father would be waiting for him, or, of course, if his heart was not lighter than a feather, he would never see his father again. Hearts that did not pass the test of Osiris were fed to Amit, the devourer, and their owners ceased to exist. If he failed, he would be condemned to an eternity of nothingness. Coming up, Ben-Ben must face Osiris's judgment. Now, back to the story. Ben-Ben felt his stomach tighten. That morning, he'd been a living apprentice, gathering reeds and preparing himself for a long day of hard work. Now, he was dead, standing in front of the immortal Bennu bird, contemplating a terrifying journey into the afterlife. He wondered if he could just stay there, wandering the empty temple for all eternity. Anything sounded better than diving blindly into the darkness in front of him. He felt something brush his leg and looked down to see that the Bennu bird had come to stand beside him. Almost as if it could hear his thoughts, it said, "'You cannot stay here. All souls must undergo the judgment of the gods, but you will not be alone. You and your father were faithful to me in life, and now in death I will be your guide." The bird draped one of its wings over Ben-Ben's shoulder. Its feathers were like the finest linen he had ever felt. They were slightly warm and smelled of cinnamon, cloves, and myrrh. Their touch made Ben-Ben's heart feel lighter. The bird blinked slowly and said, I know that the journey seems frightening, but I believe in you, and so does your father. He waits for you in the field of reeds, Ben-Ben. Come with me and we shall join him there. 
Looking into the bird's sparkling green eyes, Ben-Ben didn't feel so afraid anymore. He smiled and walked on through the doorway. The phoenix has taken on dozens of different roles in its 4,000 years on Earth. With each one, it becomes a new type of bird. The Egyptians saw it as a stork who guided the dead to their eternal reward. The Greeks described it as a red and purple eagle whose nest of spices and myrrh embodied the exoticism of the East. But when the phoenix entered into the mythology of medieval Europe, it took on Christian themes. With its Middle Eastern origins and story of rebirth, it made the perfect metaphor for Christ. In countless bestiaries, it's pictured with a halo and described as definitive proof of Christ's resurrection. With the birth of the Renaissance, the phoenix transcended its avian form entirely. In the 14th century, the Italian poet Francesco Petrarch transformed the phoenix into a metaphor for human perfection. Petrarch used the immortal bird to represent a woman named Laura. The object of his unrequited love, Laura was a frequent subject of Petrarch's poems. For this lovesick poet, Laura was the ultimate symbol of perfection and feminine beauty. Her association with the phoenix would spawn a trend of Renaissance poets who used its image to describe a beautiful and ultimately unattainable woman. This practice would culminate in Queen Elizabeth I adopting the bird as her personal emblem. Eventually, the bird would be used to refer to any uniquely extraordinary historical figure. Soldiers, explorers, and great scholars were all called phoenixes as a testament to their great skill or genius. This may come from the idea that great accomplishments are the only true path to immortality. Of course, some feats come at a great price. One Phoenix story is a poignant reflection of the sacrifices made for achievement, and it concerns one of the greatest overachievers of all time, Alexander the Great. A freezing wind bit at Alexander's cheeks as he made his way up the steep hillside. The only sound he'd heard for miles was the lonely howl of the winter wind. For years, he'd been surrounded by noise, the clamor of the city or the din of battle. He wasn't used to this kind of quiet. Usually, he never went anywhere without a full complement of soldiers, but not today. Today, his generals had revealed themselves to be cowards, deserters who wanted to run home to the comfort of Alexandria. The glory of the greatest empire the world had ever known was within their grasp, and they turned away. They'd crossed the deserts of Arabia, defeated the Persian armies, and summited the snow-covered mountaintops of the Hindu Kush, and now they wanted to go home. They claimed that they were tired, that they had lost too many men and spent too many years away from their families. They said they'd made too many sacrifices. But hadn't he made sacrifices? 
He'd devoted his life to this. He'd never had a family of his own. It had been years since he'd seen his beloved Roxana. Even his horse Bucephalus had been sacrificed. But Alexander knew that this was the price one paid for something truly great. This was the cost of immortality. Alexander pressed on toward the darkened cavern set into the mountainside. He'd been to see an oracle once before, just after his triumph at Alexandria. He'd trudged across miles of yellow dunes, wandering ever deeper into the western desert until he finally reached the temple of Amun. The building was half buried in sand and empty. When he'd entered, his footsteps echoed eerily through the stone hallways. Finally, he came to a low chamber where he found the Oracle of Amun. It was said that the wizened old man was a god of good counsel, but he had only had one underwhelming piece of advice for Alexander. He had described the mountains around Nicaea and how one day Alexander would find himself there. At the peak of a mountain of adamant was a cave where the trees of the sun and the moon were housed. The oracle said that Alexander would find true wisdom in those trees. At the time, Alexander had been disappointed. He'd wanted advice on how to complete his great empire, not some enigmatic description of a cave. Now, though, he felt that the old man's prophecy might be his last chance to secure his legacy and create a united empire that would stand the test of time. As Alexander climbed further and further up the mountainside, he noticed that the rocky ground had taken on a faint silver luster. The native peoples had named this place the Mountain of Adamant, but Alexander had never imagined that it was actually composed of that legendary mineral. As he neared the entrance to the cave, he saw that what he had believed to be vines were in fact fine gold chains that formed a curtain over the mouth of the cave. Alexander pulled them aside and peered into the tunnel that had been bored into the silver-black rock. He stepped into the square stone passageway and was immediately met with the powerful scent of myrrh. Somewhere at the end of the tunnel, he could see a dim light. He began to walk toward it. As he came closer, he heard a sound like the music of a lute. The light grew brighter until it was so strong that Alexander had to shade his eyes. Finally, he stepped out of the dark passage and into the open air on the other side. Alexander blinked and looked around. He was standing in a sun-dappled forest, so unlike the frosty mountainside he'd been climbing moments earlier. It was almost as if he'd gone through the mountain and emerged someplace a thousand miles away. He spotted a clearing nearby with two great willow trees standing side by side. One of the trees was covered in leaves and dripping with delicate pink blossoms. The other was barren. As Alexander entered the glen, the music stopped. 
He looked around for its source and saw that a massive bird was standing between the two trees. Its back was patterned with purple and gold, and three great feathers erupted from its head. Each one was a magnificent shade of purple. Though Alexander had never seen one in person before, he knew what he was looking at. It was a phoenix. Alexander knelt down and offered it his hand to kiss. It was a Persian custom that he'd grown used to. As the bird touched its golden beak to his knuckles, Alexander realized how silly he was being. He almost pulled his hand away. Before he could, the bird turned its green-gold eyes on him and spoke in a voice like a harp. Have you come here for my advice, Alexander? Alexander nodded dumbly, and the phoenix sighed. I'm afraid I can offer you no help with invasions or military campaigns. All I have to give is wisdom. Concealing his disappointment, Alexander bowed his head and replied, I ask for nothing more. No truly great empire has been built without wisdom. The phoenix continued, Your empire is already great, and it will be greater still. But you, Alexander, will never go home again. You will live forever, and you will die naked and alone. Alexander's eyes filled with tears. The phoenix bent down and touched its beak to his temple. Then in a rush of air scented with the bittersweet odor of myrrh, the phoenix took off, disappearing into the sky of the impossible forest. Alexander turned around and headed back into the cave. His mind was reeling from the bird's advice, the words naked and alone rang in his head, but in spite of that frightening mantra, he felt strangely light. He pictured the man who had entered this cave just minutes before and suddenly pitied him. How wrong he had been. How foolish. He emerged into the softly falling snow outside the cave. Suddenly, he didn't care about conquering India or building a great empire. Suddenly, the only thing he wanted was to return to be with Roxana. Let other men live forever. He would die with his wife. In the 4th century BCE, Alexander the Great cut a relentless trail of conquest from Greece to India. He only stopped when his exhausted generals begged him to head home to Babylon. We don't know why Alexander agreed to turn around, but the author of the fictional Prose Life of Alexander theorized that it may have had something to do with advice from a phoenix. It makes sense that Alexander the Great would be associated with the phoenix. Though he did leave India and return to Babylon, his change of heart would not last long. He would soon plan to leave Babylon to conquest once again. In his short 32-year lifespan, Alexander the Great built one of the largest empires the world had ever seen. It came at a price, but in the end, Alexander did attain his own kind of immortality. 
The phoenix is not a timeless creature, rather it is timely. It has lived for so long in our collective imagination because it has the ability to reinvent itself. It can set aflame the parts of itself that are tired and old. It is reborn again and again for a new generation from the ashes of the obsolete. It's an inspiring idea, this concept that you can reinvent yourself. Rebirth is a dream human beings constantly strive for. It's a story we tell through our laws, our religions, even our art. Humans will always want to believe that we can burn down the old ways and build a new and better future from the ashes. If the phoenix can do it, why can't we? Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on the Phoenix, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Phoenix, an unnatural biography of a mythical beast by Joseph Nigg, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Zoe Louisa Lewis, with writing assistance by Alex Garland. I'm Vanessa Richardson.